All right, I just want to begin with a question today. I want you to think about in what do you place your trust? Think about that. Every day you go through life, there's hundreds of different things that you probably have to trust in. Things that are out of your control, but you still have to place your trust in them to happen. What is it for you, right? Anybody uh, going out to lunch to eat after services today? Yeah, you're going to have to use some trust for that, okay? And uh, so first of all, you're going to have to get in your car and hope it didn't overheat in the 112-degree heat index. And so hopefully your car starts to trust in that. As you're driving to the restaurant, you're going to have to trust that everybody obeys the traffic laws, obeys the traffic lights. you got to trust no one comes into your lane or someone coming at you doesn't swerve in. Like every car you pass, there's an issue of trust that has to happen. I remember when I was getting my driver's license, my mom said, it's not you I'm worried about, it's all the other idiots on the road. I think that meant she was talking about y'all, so sorry about about that. Um, But anyways, you have to trust that. Then you get to the restaurant, and that's where the real trust begins, is it not, right? You've got to trust that the, uh, the food was processed correctly, that it's not contaminated, that it's cooked to the right Temperature, you've got to trust that the utensils you're using, the plate you're using, the cup you're drinking off, the kitchen, that it's all been cleaned properly. And I'm certain that the 16-year-old closing the restaurant at midnight last night who's ready to go vape with his friends, I'm sure he took just an extra moment to sit there and be like, oh, they're coming, let me get this plate right. So you got to trust that. you got to trust that the cook doesn't... You know, we're just hoping that that doesn't happen. We're hoping the cook doesn't, you know, scratch his rear and then plate your salmon, right? We're hoping that he's not cooking over the burger and a little sweat's dropping off the brow into the burger. And you're like, mmm, it's so salty today, you know? There's a lot of trust you have to place. They're like, stop it. I'm not going out to eat anymore, right? You get home and trust continues. you got to trust that the garage door is going to open, that the lights are going to come on, the, faucet, the water's going to come out of the faucet, the toilet's going to flush, your alarm clock's going to wake you up in the morning. Between now and tomorrow morning, you will place your trust in hundreds of things that are out of your control. We just do that. But when it comes to trust, there's something that is more important than all of those things put together. When it comes to trust, there's one item that whether you trust in this or not changes your entire life. It's the Bible. Whether or not you trust the Bible determines your worldview, the perspective, the lens in which you view and process every piece of information in the world. And your worldview then influences your values and your priorities, which then impacts your actions Your behaviors, whether or not you trust the Bible is huge. It it helps you determine how you answer life's biggest questions. Where do we come from? Why are we here? What's the purpose of life? What, What is right and wrong? Is there a God? Is there not a God? What happens to us after we die? Whether or not you trust the Bible, it changes all that. But the question is, can we really, truly, wholeheartedly trust the Bible. It's not like putting our trust in someone to make us a burger for lunch. What's at stake here is your entire life, every detail, and your eternal destiny. Can you trust the Bible? Well, the Bible itself makes some claims, and it says, yes, 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 you can trust me. We see this in verses like 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All Scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, 
equipped for every good work. The Bible also says, hey, you can trust me in 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The Bible says you can trust me in Psalm 19, 7 through 9. The law of the Lord is perfect. It's reviving to the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. But in our day and age, we're still a little skeptical. People make claims all the time. You can trust me. You can trust me. Food companies, restaurants, right, where you go out to lunch. But every now and then, something odd, something weird slips into your food. I did a quick little Google research on, hey, what are some things people have found in their food? You're going to love this. (laughs) Shards of glass and baby food jars, right? Gerber says, you can trust me sometimes. Black widow spider in a bag of grapes, cockroach and hash browns. I like this one. A tooth in a candy bar. Hey, honey, when they start putting peanuts in the Three Musketeers bar? That's a tooth, right? Even they found a Band-Aid in a bag of fries, you know. It's just, ugh, it's disgusting. All these companies, all these institutions say, you can trust me. Every now and then there's a mistake they made. Think about all the recalls, right? Samsung phones just spontaneously combusting and catching on fire. I read an article about Mattel toys who, who painted their Barbies with lead paint. That was wonderful. Bridgestone tires falling apart. Toyota car pedals keep getting stuck. Even Bluebell killed three people. Right? Bluebell, like the most trusted brand of all. 108 years, not one recall. You think after a 108 year relationship, you can really trust someone? But even Bluebell, right? And so we have this. We, we still get food poisoning. Companies make mistakes. Products malfunction. Planes still crash. People still lie, cheat, steal, and sin. And in the depths of your heart, sometimes you can't even trust yourself. And so this all leads us to ask, can we really trust the Bible? Can we stake our lives and our eternal destiny on this book? There's never been a time in human history where I believe people are more skeptical of the Bible than they are today. There's people like Richard Dawkins who says this about the Bible. To be fair, much of the Bible is not systematically evil. It's just plain weird. As you would expect of a chaotically cobbled together anthology of disjointed documents, composed, revised, translated, distorted, and improved by hundreds of anonymous authors, editors, copyists, unknown to us and mostly unknown to each other, spanning nine centuries. Sam Harris says this of the Bible, It's time we admitted from kings to presidents on down that there is no evidence that any of our books were authored by the creator of the universe. The Bible, it seems certain, was the work of sand-strewn men and women who thought the earth was flat and for whom a wheelbarrow would have been a breathtaking example of emerging technology. To rely on such a document as the basis for your worldview is to repudiate 2,000 years of civilizing insights. Why not just admit the Bible is merely a collection of imperfect books written by highly fallible human beings? And the late Christopher Hitchens says this of the Bible. The Bible may, actually indeed does, contain a warrant for trafficking humans, 
for ethnic cleansing, for slavery, for bride price, for indiscriminate massacre. But we are not bound by any of it because it was put together by crude, uncultured human mammals. It's these thoughts that uh, are prominent in our society. These thoughts are being propagated across college universities. I just spoke to a mom after the service, and she's thinking about her son going off to college, and she's getting very worried. She's like, what happens if he runs up against things? Can he trust the Bible if he runs up to someone, a professor with a Ph.D., who says, no, 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 there's all these inaccuracies. What is he going to do? And so what I wanted to do today is answer the question, can you and I stake our lives, stake our eternal destiny on the Bible? The answer is absolutely, wholeheartedly, yes, we can. And so with the rest of my time with you today, I just want to give you four of the most common objections that I've heard of why people doubt the Bible, its reliability, its veracity. And we'll kind of work through those together. So the very first one is this. It's the question of the canon. It's this idea that who gets to choose what went into the Bible? Who chose that? And why was this book left out? Why is it 66 and not 67 or 65? And what about the Gnostic Gospels? The Apost- right? It's all these types of questions. And so why was the canon needed in the first place? Well, you see there's these writings that most people say, hey, this is holy. This is scripture. This is from God. This is sacred. But then someone comes along and starts picking and choosing. They go, you know what? I'll take two-thirds of those and the one-third I'm not going to believe in. Then another guy comes along and he says, you know what? I kind of like these books but not these books. And so the Christian community, out of a reaction to that, said, hey, we need to put a system in place. We need to have a, a rule, a standard, a canon for what is and is not in the Bible. And so you ask, well, well, who got to choose? Why did they get to pick those 66 books? Well, the answer is this. The Bible was determined by God. It was merely recognized by man. So what did men do? The criteria they used to determine which of the books made it into the canon. There's five criteria that I want to give you today. One is authority. A book of the Bible must have the authority of a spiritual leader. For the Old Testament, it must have been written or oriented by a king, a judge, a prophet, a scribe. For the New Testament, it must be written or oriented by an apostle. The second criteria for deciding or discovering what God had determined to be the canon is orthodoxy. That the teachings should be uncontested with the rest of Scripture. The third one is Catholicity, which is this universal agreement on what is in the Bible. So communities would go, oh, you believe the Gospel of John? Us too. And you guys believe the Gospel of John? Fantastic, we do too. And so as they would go around, they would say, oh, all of us in different communities, we hold universally to the same standard of what books are Scripture. Then Christocentricity is another criteria. It's the whole Bible is a redemptive work. is Christ as its center. For a book to be recognized in the canon, it should have implicitly, if not explicitly, Jesus Christ at the center. And the fifth criteria is not true in every case, but it claims divine authority. It claims inspiration. And while it appears that this is a bit of a circular argument, nevertheless, there's various New Testament writings that clearly claim inspiration or assume such authority. Thus says the Lord. And so we ask ourselves, so let's put this to the test. Why not the Apocrypha? The Apocrypha are the intertestamental writings between Malachi and Matthew, those 400-year period that some Bibles include, but our Protestant evangelical Bible, we do not. So why are those not a part? Well, Wayne Grudem, in his book, Systematic Theology, writes this. 
Number one, that the books, the Apocrypha, do not claim for themselves the same kind of authority as other Old Testament writings. They are not regarded as God's word by Jewish people from whom they originated, and they were not considered scripture by Jesus or any other New Testament authors. And they contain teachings inconsistent with the rest of the Bible. So I brought a few of those inconsistent teachings to kind of show you as a filter we can use. In the wisdom of Solomon, it teaches that the creation of the world came out of pre-existent matter, opposite of what Genesis teaches. In Ecclesiasticus, it says that the giving of alms makes atonement for sin. Again, contradictory to scripture. In Baruch, it said that God hears the prayers of the dead. Again, we see some of these excerpts and we go, oh, that makes sense, right? I now see why they would not be included in the canon. And then we have these things called the Gnostic Gospels that people find there, discovered in Egypt. They go, oh, oh, we can't trust the Bible because it's not whole and complete. There's these other books, right? Well, there's a very good reason the Gnostic Gospels didn't make it into the canon. So I brought some excerpts to show you. First one is from the Infancy Gospel of Thomas. And here's what it says. It says, Jesus was passing through a village, and a boy ran up against him and struck his shoulder. And Jesus was angry and said to him, Thou shalt not go back the way thou camest. And immediately the boy fell down dead. And some who saw what had taken place, whence was this child begotten, that every word of his certainly is accomplished. And the parents of the dead boy, they went to Joseph. They blamed him, saying, Since thou hast such a child, it is impossible for thee to live with us in the village, or else teach him to bless and not to curse for he's killing our children. So here in this Gnostic gospel, the infancy Thomas of gospel, what we see is that somebody runs into Jesus and he just zaps him, kills him right down the spot, right? Sounds a lot like the other gospels. No, not at all, right? So that's why this one doesn't make it. We see in the gospel of Philip, another Gnostic gospel, and the companion of the Savior is Mary Magdalene. Jesus loved her more than all the other disciples and used to kiss her often. Okay, another excerpt from Gospel of Philip is this. Some said Mary was conceived by the Holy Spirit, but they are in error. They do not know what they are saying. Whenever has a female been impregnated by another female? And find the Gospel of Thomas, we see this excerpt. Simon Peter says to them, let Mary go away from us, for women are not worthy of life. Jesus said, look, I will draw her in as to make her a male, so that she too may become a living male spirit Similar to you, Peter. Okay, so we can be confident that the 66 we have, there's a good reason for it. So when these other books come up, right, God has already determined the criteria was used to recognize it. And this other stuff doesn't degrade our faith. It doesn't cause us to question what is in the Bible that is true, that is accurate. The second most common objection I encounter is this. It's what I call context. And it deals with matters of, like, slavery, Polygamy, cruelty. For sake of time, I just want to tackle one topic, and that one is of slavery. And this is a hard one, right? At your work, in your neighborhood, someone comes up to you and they quote you this verse, Ephesians 6, 5. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. And someone could come up to you and say, hey, you're a Christian, right? Oh, absolutely. You believe the Bible, right? Absolutely I do. Then explain this one to me. Well, this is what your religion says, that the slaves ought to obey their earthly masters? And it puts us in this weird problem, but they don't understand the context of which that was written. When you and I think slaves, we think someone taken from a country, robbed from a family, 
someone bound and shackled and chained, someone treated poorly and made to work long hours and, and treated like property and like a human. But that is not at all what Paul had in mind and not at all what Paul was talking about when he was addressing slavery. What they called first century slavery is so different than what you and I think of when we hear the word slave. Slaves in the ancient world would be regarded more as a social class rather than victims of racism, injustice, or exploitation. It's a way for people to make money since there is no such thing as welfare. Someone could sell themselves to a family to pay off debt. So don't think of slaves the way we think of. When you hear that in the Bible, we're thinking of contract employees, domestic servants. We have records that there were slaves who were maids and cooks and teachers and even physicians. Right? Incredible, incredible stuff that even slaves could do. And so Paul is no way supporting slavery. But what we see is it's almost tolerable. And so you ask the question, well, why was it tolerated? Well, so one quote says this, Christians could tolerate the institution of slavery in the first century because in many cases it was tolerable. So the next question that kind of comes up for someone is like, why, okay, if it was tolerable, whatever, but, but why didn't Paul just stand up and say like, no, in no form, in no way, in no fashion? John MacArthur has a great quote on this. He said, New Testament teaching does not focus on reforming and restructuring human systems, which are never the root cause of human problems. The issue is always the heart of man when wicked will corrupt the best of systems and when righteous will improve the worst. If men's sinful hearts are not changed, they will find a way to oppress others regardless of whether there is actual slavery. And finally, we get to the third objection. Why do people not believe in the Bible? They said, you know what, there's copies is what I like to call it. And I don't know if you knew this, but we have zero original writings of the Bible. They don't exist. No originals whatsoever. All we have are copies of copies of copies of copies. And so here's what people will say. They'll come up and say, if we don't have any of the originals, how can we actually trust what the Bible says? And so there's two methods scholars use to determine uh, the veracity, the reliability of a text. Number one is the amount of copies we have in our possession. Second, is the distance, the the date between the earliest found manuscript, the earliest found copy, and the time of its origin, when the book was originated, when it was written. And so we can take some classic scholarly examples that people say, yeah, this is reliable, this is accurate, we can believe in this. One would be the Gallic Wars by Julius Caesar. And so you ask, well, how many copies of the Gallic Wars, we don't have the originals, how many copies do we have? We have 250 copies. A good bit for something that old, that ancient. Well, what's the time between our earliest copy, our earliest manuscript, and when the Gallic Wars were originally written? Well, that time period is a 1,000 years. And scholars would say, hey, we we have 250 copies within a 1,000 years. This is good. This is reliable. Next to that is Homer's Iliad. It is unprecedented. There is no other text like it. Homer's Iliad has 1,800 copies, 1,800. There's nothing else close to it. And then beyond that, it's dated, the earliest manuscript we have is 400 years from when the originals were written. And so we hold this up on a pedestal and say, wow, this is incredible. This is reliable. This is accurate. But there's one more book that oftentimes doesn't get credit as being accurate, and it's the Bible. 
So when it comes to the Bible, how many copies, how many manuscripts, how many fragments do we have in our possession? If the Iliad is the second best with 1,800, the Bible is the best with 66,000 copies, fragments that we have. What's the date between the latest manuscript and when some of it was written? How about 50 years we have some copies? And so yet, there's so many people in times where like, oh, I don't know if I believe the Bible, I don't know if I can rely on it. We have 66,000 fragments, copies, manuscripts, sometimes within 50 years of the date of origin. Okay, so we can trust in the Bible. Other people would say this, well, men make mistakes. And when men copy the Bible, therefore, the Bible must have mistakes. It's faulty logic. Just because people do make mistakes didn't mean they have to. There were men who dedicated their lives to meticulously copying every little detail of the text. Mistakes were mitigated by a system of double and triple checks. If any mistakes were found, the document was destroyed. So I went and looked. I was kind of curious. Well, what do they mean by double, triple checks? You know, what, what was the transmission process for copying a text? And here's what I found. The Masoretic scribes in charge of the Old Testament manuscript copying used a very meticulous system of transcription and had a deep reverence for the text. They had specific rules on the type of ink, the quality and the size of the parchment sheet. So they're not just haphazardly doing this. No individual letter could be written down with having being looked back at the copy in front of them. So every time you write a letter, you're looking back. They were so meticulous that they counted all the paragraphs, all the words, all the letters, so they could know by counting if they had done it perfectly. They knew the middle letter of each book so they could count back and see if they had missed anything. Just incredible, right? So they, they, they write the book, they copy the book of Proverbs, and they count every single letter in the book. You know, and they're like, oh, the original or the copy that I was copying off of, that had 10,500,000 letters. And here I got 10,501,000. Oh, there goes two years of my life, you know. Just how frustrating would that be? But that's how meticulous they were in making sure of accurate transcription. We have people saying this, if all we have are copies of copies of copies, then they must be corrupt. Haven't you ever played the telephone game before? The telephone game is I'd come over this side of the room, you know, I'd whisper something in their ear, and then it would snake all the way through. By the time it got over here, it's something totally different. It's this idea that we can't pass things without there being some corruption to enter in. And so this was the thought, even with the Bible, until 1947, the year we found the Dead Sea Scrolls. And the Dead Sea Scrolls were amazing. And here's what happened. At that time, before 1947, before we found the Dead Sea Scrolls, our earliest copy of the book of Isaiah was 900 A.D. That was our earliest manuscript that we had. And so when the Dead Sea Scrolls, what it is, is this little community off the Dead Sea called Qumran. They got to go and visit there. And it was only men, no women. They just dedicated their lives. They said, all I'm doing is copying scripture. And they had all these ritual baths that they would go and they'd take baths and purify themselves and they just copy, copy, copy. And then around from Qumran, you can kind of go around and into the caves, there were these places that they would hide the scrolls. They put the scrolls in these kind of clay jars and take them off and hide them in the caves. So if they were ever raided, the word of God would be preserved. And so it wasn't until 1947, a guy's walking, his goats around, tending them. He's taking rocks and he's just chunking them into caves. He throws one and he hears a different sound. He hears a shattering of clay. So he goes in and that's how we discover the Dead Sea Scrolls. The greatest discovery in all the Dead Sea Scrolls was the great scroll of Isaiah. An entire copy of Isaiah dated to 100 B.C. 
see a thousand years earlier than our earliest copy. So now we get to see how the telephone game works. We've got our 100 BC and 980. We've got a thousand years of copy, and we get to put them together and say, did the telephone game, did it get corrupted? When they did this, here's what they found. 95% accuracy. Incredible. And I'll tell you about the other 5% in just a minute. The contradictions is the fourth and final most common objection that I see. is people say, oh, the Bible can't keep its facts straight. Therefore, it can't be trusted. Brought some examples for you. First one is in Leviticus 11, starting in verse 13. And these you shall detest among the birds. They shall not be eaten, for they are detestable. The eagle, the bearded vulture, the black vulture, the kite, the falcon of any kind, the raven of any kind, the ostrich. Thank you, Leviticus, for being so inspiring. Verse 19, the stork, the heron of any kind, the hope, and the bat. And people go, did you catch it? It said, don't eat these birds, and it listed bat. A bat's not a bird. The Bible's not true. Boom, right? And I'm serious about this. I've seen this argument come up. They're like, a bat's not a bird. You know, the Bible can't be trusted. It can't be satisfaction. Well, first of all, scientific classification of animals thousands of years ago might have been a little different than it is today. And secondly, the word for bird is the Hebrew word op, O-P, which literally translated means anything that flies. We're good, okay? <laughs> it's okay. You don't have to burn your Bibles when you get home, all right? The second example, here's one I brought for you from Matthew and from Luke. We're going to compare these two texts. Matthew 8, verse 5. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him. Lord, my servant is paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. Let's look at the same story recorded by Luke. After Jesus had finished saying all these things and hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. And now a centurion who had a servant who was sick to the point of death was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent him elders of the Jews asking him to come and heal the servant. So in Matthew, the centurion goes. In Luke, the centurion sends others. And people go, look, you got these, these reports can be corroborated. They're false. They contradict one another. The Bible can't be trusted. Away with it all, right? Well, here's the deal. When the centurion sent the man, he sent him on his behalf, in his authority. And so it's as if the centurion was there. That's an ambassador, right? And so what we see here in the text is it's, it's not wrong. It doesn't change me. It doesn't change anything. It doesn't change our theology or doctrine. All it is is just Matthew is being, or Luke is being more specific than Matthew is. All the times in the Bible we've had people say, you know, they do something on behalf or it's credited to the one in authority. The Bible also says that Pilate is the one that scourged Jesus. But did he really? Did he really take off his robe and his little, you know, leaf crown thing and get out the whip? No. It was just under his authority. So, again, we see it's a seeming contradiction, but not at all matters in the text. So, how many variants, what we call textual variants, across the 66,000 manuscripts and copies. If you line all 66,000 up and you, you look at every letter of every one and every word and you start comparing, how many variants do we have? We have over 400,000 textual variants between the 66,000 copies. But here, here's the deal with those. 99% are spelling, grammar, and punctuation. So the way, the way you spell theater, whether it's R-E or E-R, that would be considered a textual variant. It doesn't change anything, right? Just a spelling. Grammar. The restaurant I went to was great. 
I ate at a great restaurant, right? Doesn't change the meaning, but it's a variant. Where you put a comma is a variant. Only 1% of the textual variants actually change the meaning of the word, and zero, none, change Christian doctrine or theology. We can have confidence in God's word. I wrote here, I mean, thinking about even just believing in miracles. It's like if you are a Christian, you have to believe in miracles. You have to believe in the resurrection of Christ. And if you believe that Christ can be resurrected from the dead, that God can speak everything into existence, can he not protect and preserve his word for us? Absolutely he can. But when we get to com- or problem passages, what do we do? Let me give you five things. Number one. Citations need not be exact to be true. So I said, wow, it's full in here today. There's a thousand people in here. Well, it's not exactly a thousand people, but I'm using an expression. And that's allowed in the human language. And so there's places in Acts where someone's speaking and says, oh, yeah, they were in Egyptian slavery for 400 years. Well, there's other places in the Bible where it says they're in Egyptian slavery for 430 years. It's just that the person who's speaking in Acts may be just giving an approximation, right? Just normally what we do in the human language. A partial report is not a false report. In the Bible, it's not written to give us every single little detail. Jesus walking into Capernaum wearing, you know, a nice long linen robe with, you know, grade 2 cowhide shoes, size 12, a little arch support, you know. It's not the point. The point is not to have every single detail. The point is to have the story of God. So a partial report is not a false report. Even this, different accounts are not necessarily contradictory. And I'll prove it to you, right? If I walked into the middle of the room here and I held up a quarter and turned it sideways and I asked you guys, what do you see here? You see George Washington. You see the heads. And I looked over here and said, what do you guys see here? Tails. And so, you know, you write your book and you write your book and everybody's like, oh, my goodness, they, it can't be trusted. You know, these people are liars and it can't be relied on. Well, yes, you can. Just because different accounts don't necessarily contradict one another, actually what it could do is give us a more full and rich picture and so when we see four Gospels and we see, well, the centurion came or he didn't or what was inscribed above Jesus' head or was there one angel or two at the tomb, I think what we're getting is a full, rich picture, not contradictions. A different word can have the same meaning. Hello, hi, howdy. That could account for a variant. A single word can have multiple meanings, date, point, right. So textual variants are not errors we can trust in the Bible. But here's the deal. I truly believe people's belief in the Bible, reliability of Scripture is at an all-time low. And Barna did a survey kind of to prove this. And so they said, we want to see how many Americans, what percentage of American population has a biblical worldview. And so to do this, they had to kind of create a little criteria. So they created six statements. And if you said yes, if you affirmed these, you would have a biblical worldview. Here are the six statements. Number one, there's absolute moral truths. Number two, the Bible is accurate in the principles it teaches. Satan is real. A person cannot earn their way into heaven. Jesus Christ lived a sinless life on earth. And God is the all-knowing, all-powerful creator of the world who still rules the universe today. We would affirm these statements at this church. They go out and they do a survey all across America. Here's what they find. Only 9% of the American population would affirm these statements. They would say only 9% has a biblical worldview. And then they got even more specific. They said, hey, what about this kind of upcoming generation? What about those like 18 to 23-year-olds, like that, that college group? Let's ask them less than half a percent. 
When it comes to the Bible specifically, they did a survey and said the percent of boomers, those ages 51 to 69, who believe the Bible is a guide for living a meaningful life, 60% said, yeah, those in the 51 to 69 range, that the Bible is a guide for meaningful life. What about two generations later? What about the millennials, those 18 to 31? The percentage of millennials who believe the Bible is a guide for a living, meaningful life, only 27% in just a few generations. Only 75 or 75% of teens don't even read the Bible once a week. 80% of teenagers believe the Bible has errors. 22% of millennials don't believe in any sacred literature or holy writing. This is interesting. It's like they don't, they don't believe in the Bible. They don't believe in the Koran. Nothing. They say nothing is sacred. Nothing is holy. 22% now, that number was 7% in 2011. In six years, the number of millennials who say there's no writings has tripled in six years. 36% of millennials have no religious affiliation. Not elusive, just like the new term is they're called the nuns, not N-U-N, but N-O-N-E-S. They have no religious affiliation at all. And so if our children do not have confidence that they cannot rely on the Bible, if we have not taught them that, their faith will erode and they will walk. But I say to you today, not at Rock Point Church, not our kids, not on our watch, right? All right, let's go for it. (laughs) And so here's what they need, right? They need you. They need you to be in their lives, to teach them that the Bible is true, to teach them the word of God, to live it out passionately in front of them. They need you to serve in their ministries and children and students ministry to show them, yes, you can stake your here and now and your ever after on what the Bible says. It's true. It's reliable. There are hundreds of souls down the hall and in these other two buildings. Hundreds of minds, hundreds of lives. Every single one will ask the question at one point, can I trust the Bible? And all I'm asking the church is that you would lean into that and you would be there in their areas, in their lives, so that when they ask that, you can say, absolutely, yes, you can. So what I want to do just to close my sermon today is I want to show you a video that our children's ministry made talking about what it means to serve in children's ministry, the joy that the leaders get as they are teaching and training and showing these children that, yes, the Bible is real. You can stake your entire life and your eternal destination on it. Take a look at that video, then Ron will come back up to close us out. 